1: The new season of Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace, is here. Every Wednesday, we feature two new episodes that focus on a different scandalous figure from history. Today, I'm back to share another episode. If you enjoy it, please head over to the Famous Fates feed and subscribe today. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. The episode you're about to hear focuses on Lance Armstrong, who won a record-smashing seven Tours de France after beating cancer. He was once the international symbol of resilience and courage. Then, everything fell apart. Today's other episode is on O.J. Simpson, a Hall of Fame football player who went on to make headlines for all the wrong reasons. Listen to it over at the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe for free today.
2: For as long as there's been bike racing, there's been cheating in bike racing.
1: In the 1904 Tour de France, the second year the race was held, several riders were caught taking trains and sabotaging their competitors. The malfeasance was so pervasive, the race was almost canceled. And yet, it
2: wasn't. As the years passed, the Tour grew in prestige and popularity, becoming one of the world's biggest sporting events. But the more eyes there were on the race, the harder it got to cheat. Instead of train hopping and putting itching powder in their rival shorts, racers turned to more pharmaceutical techniques.
1: By the 1990s, the Tour de France was more of a medical operation than a sporting event. It wasn't about who trained the hardest or had the most guts. It was about who could take the most drugs. The world's greatest endurance race had become a farce. That is, until Lance Armstrong came along.
2: He descended on the 1999 Tour de France like an avenging angel, punishing those who had wronged the sport. He was fast, he was strong, and best of all, he was clean.
1: Over the next few years, Lance earned the title of the most scrutinized man in sports. If anyone doubted him, all he had to do was point out that he had never tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. However, that wasn't true.
2: Lance's incredible rise wasn't fueled by sophisticated training methods, intense desire, or good old American pluck. It was powered by the most sophisticated doping ring of all time.
1: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: I'm Carter Roy.
1: And this is season two of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once revered historical figures whose stories ended in less than savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry.
2: They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. This week's topic is disgraced sports heroes. For our
1: second episode, we're covering Lance Armstrong, who famously won the Tour de France seven consecutive times from 1999 to 2005.
2: During that time, Lance was everywhere. Chances are you sported one of his iconic yellow Livestrong bracelets.
1: And chances are you bought into the myth that Lance never took performance-enhancing drugs.
2: But it was just that, a myth. And once it was exposed, it revealed the extraordinary and illegal measures Lance took to keep his image intact.
1: On July 25, 1999, the American flag fluttered over Paris. 27-year-old Lance Armstrong stood atop the Tour de France podium, clad in the winner's yellow jersey, like Jason draped with a golden
2: fleece. Lance's rise was the epitome of a hero's journey. Less than three years earlier, he was fighting testicular cancer that had spread into his abdomen, lungs, and brain. And now... He was the winner of the world's most prestigious endurance race. Over 21 days and 2,200 miles in the blistering sun and punishing mountain passes, nobody had been able to outride him.
1: Lance's victory made him an instant sensation. Before the 99 Tour, people knew who he was. His inspiring fight against cancer had been widely publicized. But winning the Tour de France made him a bona fide American hero.
2: His win was especially meaningful in the States because he was an American who conquered a European-dominated sport. And he had done it while riding for a predominantly American team, sponsored by the U.S. Postal Service, no less. It was regarded as a monumental national accomplishment. The New York Times even equated Lance's victory with putting a man on the moon. Sponsors
1: were quick to capitalize on Lance's newfound stardom. By February 2000, 16 companies sponsored Lance to the tune of $7.5 million. But Lance wasn't the only one benefiting from his surge in popularity. The entire cycling community was.
2: Prior to the 1999 Tour de France, professional cycling's reputation was in the gutter. The 98 Tour had been rocked by a doping scandal that nearly tore the race apart. Despite being billed as the Tour of Renewal, fans were skeptical that the 1999 edition would be any different.
1: But Lance dispelled those fears. Sure, others might still be taking performance-enhancing drugs, or PEDs, but not Lance Armstrong. As he told the New York Times, he'd suffered through cancer. Nothing could make him put harmful drugs into his body again. Fans and media alike were all too eager to believe him. And without a positive drug test, there was no reason to doubt Lance was
2: telling the truth. There was just one problem. Lance had failed a drug test on the tour's first day. His urine
1: sample came back positive for corticosteroids, which reduce inflammation and, in professional sports, aid with recovery. In a grueling race like the Tour de France, corticosteroids give riders a huge edge and are banned
2: from use. However, they were legal to use if a rider had a legitimate medical reason for it. Lance and his team discussed what to do while he got his post-race massage there was a way out of this mess. Ultimately, they whipped up a backdated prescription claiming he needed the drug to treat saddle sores.
1: The International Cycling Union, or UCI, accepted the excuse without question. Cycling's governing body wouldn't let the tour of renewal be tarnished on the very first day, and the press was happy to cast a blind eye as well, for the most part.
2: Sunday Times of London reporter David Walsh wasn't so sure that Lance was clean. To him, the integrity of the sport was all that mattered. Even if the truth was ugly, it needed to be exposed. And for those willing to see it, Lance's duplicity was in plain view.
1: It wasn't just the shoddy excuse for the corticosteroid test. Lance's performances were simply too good for a clean racer. On one mountain stage in the 99 tour, he was going so fast, he had to use every inch of road to get around the corners while going uphill.
2: But as David Walsh looked on in disbelief, most people watched Lance with admiration. To fans, he was an inspiring figure who demonstrated the power of drive and determination. And to sponsors and cycling officials, Lance's marketability made him a bike riding dollar sign. They were willing to do whatever it took to make sure the money kept flowing.
1: After winning the 1999 Tour de France, the first order of business was to make sure Lance won it again in 2000. The 99 field had been relatively thin, but 2000 marked the return of the race's two previous winners before Lance, Marco Pontani and Jan Ulrich. This time, Lance had to beat the best.
2: He also had to beat a newly developed test that detected a drug called EPO. Medically, EPO is used to boost the red blood cell count for cancer patients and people suffering from kidney disease. For athletes, it brings more oxygen to the muscles, allowing them to operate more effectively.
1: Previously, the only way to test for EPO was to measure an athlete's hematocrit levels, which is the ratio of red cells to blood volume. But this test was easy to manipulate. With only a few moments notice, Lance could inject himself with a saline solution, which lowered his hematocrit below the testing threshold.
2: But this new EPO test wouldn't be beaten so easily. However, Lance had a secret weapon, Dr. Michele Ferrari.
1: The Italian sports doctor was a doping expert and a shadowy figure within professional cycling. It was an open secret that anyone who was serious about winning used his services. Lance was no exception.
2: The two of them had been working together since 1995, before Lance's cancer diagnosis. He was just another young pro seeking an edge over the competition. Ferrari was happy to give it to him.
1: Although their partnership was briefly derailed by Lance's cancer diagnosis, Ferrari was instrumental in Lance's comeback and subsequent victory in the 1999 Tour de France. The two of them had remained thick as thieves after that.
2: Ferrari had a deep understanding of how EPO worked and showed Lance how to circumvent the new test for it. Ferrari also helped Lance and his US postal teammates perform blood transfusions that boosted their oxygen levels even higher and couldn't be detected.
1: Powered by these sophisticated doping techniques, Lance steamrolled Marco Pontani and Jan Ulrich on his way to a second consecutive Tour de France victory. Even though they were former champions, they were no match for Lance's EPO-fueled conquest. Lance's win confirmed that he was more than a flash in the pan. He was so dominant, it wasn't a question of whether he'd win the tour again. It was how many times.
2: That is, if he was allowed to compete.
1: By this point, other journalists were skeptical of Lance's clean record. During the 2000 Tour de France, a group of French investigative reporters videotaped the U.S. Postal Team doctors dumping trash bags full of syringes and empty cases of a drug called Activagene. Similar to EPO, this compound can help the blood carry more oxygen to muscles, boost energy and aid recovery.
2: Although the UCI didn't specifically ban Activagene, the French government classified it as a performance-enhancing drug. Using PEDs was a criminal act in France. The prosecutor's office opened an investigation into Lance and his team.
1: Even with the ongoing investigation, Lance's preparations for the 2001 Tour de France continued all the same. For his final tune-up race before the main event, he entered the shorter, less challenging tour of Switzerland. As with every event Lance took part in, he was drug tested. And this time, his sample showed traces of synthetic EPO.
2: It was up to UCI President Hein Verbruggen to decide what to do. Although the test was technically positive, the drug levels were low enough for it to be declared borderline inconclusive. Complicating matters further, an investment banker named Thomas Weisel managed Verbruggen's financial portfolio and Weisel just so happened to have a massive stake in Lance's US postal team.
1: It was a massive conflict of interest. And in this case, Verbruggen chose his interest over that of the sport he was supposed to oversee.
2: The UCI informed Lance that he wouldn't face any punishment over the failed test. Shortly after, Lance donated $25,000 to the organization to support its anti-doping efforts.
1: With the positive EPO test in the rearview mirror, Lance set his sights on winning his third consecutive Tour de France, but this time he would be doing it under more scrutiny.
2: Following the French investigation into the U.S. postal team, Sunday Times journalist David Walsh became even more convinced that Lance was a doper. Although Lance's relationship with Dr. Ferrari wasn't public knowledge, Walsh suspected they were working together.
1: Through a connection in the Italian National Police, Walsh confirmed that Lance had visited Ferrari multiple times since 1999. Each visit just happened to occur a few months before the Tour de France.
2: Walsh's investigative report on Lance and Ferrari's partnership was set for publication on July 7, 2001, the first day of the Tour de France. In the spirit of journalistic integrity, he gave Lance the opportunity to respond to the connection before the article went to print. Rather than respond directly to Walsh, Lance used the opportunity to get ahead of the
1: story. In an exclusive interview with an Italian newspaper, he claimed he was working with Ferrari in order to break the hour-long distance record, which measured how far a cyclist could ride in a single hour. Lance insisted the entire relationship was above board.
2: For those in the cycling community, the excuse rang hollow. Lance had never shown an interest in the hour record, And Ferrari wasn't exactly known for his legitimate medical practices. But in the wider world, it hardly registered. Unless concrete proof came out that Lance was a doper, he was untouchable.
1: Once again, Lance rode to a dominating victory in the 2001 Tour de France, finishing six minutes and 44 seconds ahead of his nearest rivals. But three Tour de France championships weren't enough to truly make Lance one of the greats. To earn a place among the elite, he had to win the race five times, a feat that only four others had accomplished, and that had never been surpassed.
2: To achieve this goal, Lance redoubled his efforts. He trained harder, doped smarter. No one could stop him.
1: But David Walsh was determined to try. And after the 2001 tour, the journalist gained a new ally in his quest. One with first-hand knowledge that Lance was a cheater.
2: Coming up, Lance's world begins to
0: unravel. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
1: After winning the 2001 Tour de France, 29-year-old Lance Armstrong was on track to make history.
2: Having won the race three consecutive times, he was only two away from equaling the all-time record. But every year, winning the Tour got more challenging. Not only was Lance a year older, but new rivals emerged. Old ones became more determined to beat him. In order to keep his legacy alive, Lance had to expand his arsenal.
1: During the 2001 off-season, U.S. Postal added one of cycling's biggest up-and-comers, 26-year-old Floyd Landis.
2: While Lance was physically gifted, it seemed like Floyd Landis was created in a lab. His VO2 maximum, which measures how much oxygen a person can use during strenuous exercise, proved as much. The average person has a VO2 max numbering in the 50s. Floyd's VO2 max was in the 90s. In comparison, Lance was in the low 80s. In a sport like professional cycling that operated on razor thin margins, this was a huge disparity.
1: By getting Floyd on his team, Lance eliminated a potential adversary. Instead, Floyd would essentially serve as Lance's bodyguard during the race. Along with the seven other riders on U.S. Postal's Tour de France team, Floyd's job was to protect Lance at all costs. Shelter him from the wind, get him water bottles, even give him his bike if Lance got a flat tire. It wasn't a lot of fun, but it paid well, especially once Lance divided the 500,000 euro winner's bonus amongst the team.
2: Lance recognized Floyd's potential for greatness and took him under his wing, Ahead of the 2002 Tour de France, the two of them trained together in the Swiss ski resort town of St. Moritz. Lance's doping consigliere, Dr. Michele Ferrari, was along for the ride.
1: Meanwhile, Sunday Times journalist David Walsh was working on his crusade to expose Lance as a doper. After the 2001 tour, Walsh teamed up with Pierre Ballastere, a French reporter who was equally suspicious of Lance. They agreed to write a book detailing their investigation, and Walsh started off with a promising lead.
2: Around the same time he partnered with Pierre Ballester, Walsh connected with Betsy Andreo, the wife of one of Lance's former teammates. She and her husband Frankie went way back with Lance all the way to his pre-cancer days as an emerging pro.
1: During Lance's cancer treatment, Betsy and Frankie were constant companions by his bedside. Along with a small group of friends, they kept Lance company while he recovered from cancer-related surgery in Indianapolis.
2: One day, a doctor came to Lance's room to get his medical history. The Andreos headed for the exit, but Lance said it was fine for them to stay. He admitted in front of them and a handful of others that he had used EPO, human growth hormone, testosterone, and other steroids.
1: Betsy was dumbfounded. She had no idea how pervasive doping was in cycling. An honest person by nature, Betsy felt like withholding the truth equated to lying. She didn't wanna help cover up Lance's deception.
2: But she also knew that if she blew the whistle on cycling's doping problem, Frankie would probably get blacklisted. She held on to the secret for years, waiting for the right time to come forward.
1: By August 2001, she was finally ready. Her story of Lance's hospital room confession was just the boost David Walsh needed. It wasn't a smoking gun, per se, but it was a solid piece of corroborating evidence betsy was a reliable source she had no motive to lie and a compelling reason for waiting to reveal what she knew if walsh could find a few more people like her his book might be enough to bring lance down
2: while david walsh chased down more leads lance was wrapping up his preparations for the 2002 tour de france about a month before the race A huge weight was lifted from his shoulders when the French authorities closed the doping case they'd opened in 2000. They hadn't been able to produce any definitive proof that Lance's team had doped.
1: With Floyd Landis protecting him, Lance steamrolled his way to a fourth consecutive victory. Following the race, Sports Illustrated chose him as its Sportsman of the Year, The Associated Press followed suit. He even visited President George W. Bush at the White House. But rumors about David Walsh's upcoming book ruined what should have been an inexorable march towards a fifth Tour de France victory.
2: At some point in 2003, Lance found out that Walsh was talking to a former U.S. postal team masseuse named Emma O'Reilly. During the 1999 Tour de France, She had been treating lance while he and his inner circle discussed what to do about his positive corticosteroid test as he told her then she knew enough to bring him down and now she was spilling all his secrets to david walsh in addition to her duties as team masseuse o'reilly was tasked with delivering drugs to writers She had even covered up a needle mark on Lance's arm before a pre-race medical on the first day of the 99 Tour.
1: Like Betsy Andreo, O'Reilly didn't have ironclad proof that Lance was a doper. But taken together, their stories made him look pretty bad.
2: For the moment, all Lance could do was sit and wait for the fallout. In the meantime, he had a fifth Tour de France to win.
1: Usually, he dominated the opening day, which was traditionally a short time trial. Known as the race against the clock, racers went one by one around a short course to see who could ride it the fastest.
2: Right out of the gate, it was clear something was off with Lance. He finished in 7 minutes 33 seconds, 7 seconds slower than the fastest time. On such a short course, that was a massive gap.
1: But Lance hadn't gotten to this point on drugs alone. He was a fighter, and over the next three weeks, he battled tooth and nail.
2: In the end, he came out on top. His legacy was secure. Lance was the fifth five-time Tour de France winner and the second to do it consecutively. However, he wasn't content to share the mountaintop with anyone else. He wanted it all to himself. At 31
1: years old, he was still in his prime, and with strong riders like Floyd Landis by his side, the sky was the limit.
2: After winning his fifth tour, Lance Mania was at its height. In late 2003, he started dating pop star Sheryl Crow. In the spring of 2004, he released his Livestrong bracelets. Sales of the rubber yellow bands went directly to his cancer foundation. In just a few months, over 12 million of them were sold. But even as Lance enjoyed
1: his ever-growing celebrity, he remained focused on his goal of taking home a sixth consecutive Tour de France. However, David Walsh and his partner, Pierre Ballester, were about to make that task much harder.
2: Only a month before the 2004 Tour de France A French publisher released Walsh and Ballester's book, titled L.A. Confidential, it contained all the damning details and doping allegations from people like Betsy Andreo, Emma O'Reilly, and others.
1: Just like he did in the Tour de France every year, Lance went on the offensive. He smeared Andreo and O'Reilly in the press, calling their credibility into question. He framed them both as petty, vindictive women. He even insinuated that O'Reilly had been fired from the U.S. postal team for having inappropriate relationships with the Riders.
2: They were powerless to fight back. Lance had an army of lawyers at his beck and call, deploying gag orders and lawsuits at every turn. Andreo, O'Reilly, and the others could only sit and watch as Lance spun the narrative in his favor and ruined their lives in the process.
1: Although LA Confidentiel made a lot of people suspicious of Lance, it failed to have the wide-ranging effect Walsh hoped for. Because it was only published in French, it had little impact back in the States, where Lance was able to deploy his media machine to discredit the book. Walsh had failed and Lance wanted him to know it.
2: The day before the 2004 Tour de France, Lance held a press conference. Walsh was in attendance. Sitting atop the dais, Lance delivered the final blow. Speaking about the book, Lance said, I think extraordinary accusations must be followed up with extraordinary proof, and Mr. Walsh and Mr. Ballistair have not come up with extraordinary proof.
1: It was the perfect soundbite that fell back on Lance's tried and true argument, He had never tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, and unless he did, the public was happy to keep having the wool pulled over their eyes.
2: With Walsh out of the way, Lance was free to focus his energy on winning an unprecedented sixth Tour de France. Unlike his close call in 03, his 2004 performance was vintage Lance. But although there wasn't any drama in the overall standings there was plenty of drama on the road.
1: By the race's 17th day, Lance was so far ahead, he didn't need to worry about gaining time on any of his rivals. So when they crested that day's final climb with about 10 miles remaining, he told his trusted lieutenant, Floyd Landis, to go for the win. Floyd was far down in the overall standings, so even if he came in first that day, it wouldn't jeopardize Lance's placement.
2: Before joining U.S. Postal, Floyd was one of the world's top mountain bikers. He was one of the best bike handlers in the business and shot down the steep incline like a rocket. But for all his prowess,
1: Floyd didn't have the power to ride to the finish line alone. He had expended too much energy protecting Lance throughout the day. Thanks to him, Lance still had plenty of strength left. In the end, he won the day's race. Floyd finished in fifth, 13 seconds behind
2: one week later lance stood atop the winner's podium in paris with a sixth consecutive tour de france under his belt he was all alone in the record books he had accomplished something nobody else had done in the tour de france's 101 year history
1: that night's victory party was suitably jubilant But Floyd Landis wasn't in a celebratory mood. He resented having to sacrifice everything in order to support Lance. In fact, before the race, Dr. Ferrari told Floyd he was strong enough to win the Tour, even stronger than Lance.
2: Ferrari wasn't alone in his conclusions. Floyd had other teams vying for his services. Following the 2004 Tour de France, he announced he was signing with the Switzerland-based Phonak team. The next time he and Lance lined up for a race, they'd be rivals.
1: Lance didn't take the news well, and the first time he faced off against Floyd, he decided to send a message to his former protégé.
2: The April 2005 Tour of Georgia was an important tune-up race for that year's Tour de France. Instead of going for the overall win, Lance was protecting up-and-coming American Tom Danielson, something he had never done for Floyd. Going into the week-long
1: race's second-to-last day, Floyd held a one-minute lead over Danielson in the overall standings. With Lance keeping him safe, Danielson had the energy to beat Floyd on the day's final climb. He moved into first place only a handful of seconds ahead of Floyd.
2: After the race, Lance told reporters that he had sacrificed himself for Danielson because Danielson was loyal. But they had only been teammates for a few months. Hardly long enough for Lance to have that strong of an impression. In reality, he was taking a shot at Floyd.
1: Floyd wasn't able to respond in kind. Despite his better underlying numbers, his team couldn't stack up to Lance's. Floyd finished the 2005 Tour de France in ninth place, 12 minutes and 44 seconds
2: behind Lance. With an astounding seven consecutive Tour de France titles to his name, Lance held a record that might never be broken. It was akin to an NFL team winning the Super Bowl seven times in a row. But at 33 years old, he wasn't as fast as he used to be. No amount of EPO could defeat Father Time. So he decided to go out on top.
1: His final victory ceremony was so momentous, the race officials let him do something no Tour de France winner had ever been allowed to do, give a speech.
2: But even in a farewell address, Lance couldn't resist going on the offensive. Practically speaking directly to his nemesis, David Walsh, he said, the last thing I'll say to the cynics and the skeptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you can't dream big. I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles.
1: Except Lance's victories weren't a miracle. They were the result of a sophisticated doping program. And someone was about to prove it.
2: Coming up, Lance's empire crumbles. Now back to the story.
1: After winning the Tour de France a record seven times in a row, Lance Armstrong rode off into the sunset. He was looking forward to a lifetime of rest and relaxation, but just a few days into his retirement, his past came back to haunt him.
2: About a week after the 2005 Tour de France, a French reporter named Damien Ressieu asked Lance if he had ever needed something called a therapeutic use exemption to use banned substances. For instance, athletes with asthma are allowed to use some products that are banned for others.
1: As always, Lance denied ever taking PEDs for any reason. To prove it, he allowed Ressieu to look over his records at the UCI headquarters.
2: But Ressieu didn't actually care about therapeutic use exceptions. He just needed an excuse to get Lance's rider number, which was used in drug tests to keep riders anonymous.
1: A few months earlier, a French lab had used the latest EPO test to see how many riders had cheated before the test had been developed. 50 samples from the 1999 Tour de France were preserved well enough to be tested. 12 came back positive, and half were from the same rider.
2: One of the lab workers tipped off Resu who suspected the six samples belonged to Lance, but the only way to be sure was to cross-reference his rider number.
1: And so Resu made up the bogus story about investigating therapeutic use exemptions to get access to the UCI's database. Sure enough, Lance's rider number corresponded to the six positive tests from 1999.
2: But even in the face of a positive test, Lance refused to break. He framed rescue's story as a witch hunt. The French couldn't stand that an American was the all-time record holder for their national race, and so they added EPO to his old samples to fake a positive result. By and large, the American
1: press accepted Lance's version of events as gospel. For example, Gil Leberton of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram wrote... It doesn't take a French poodle to sniff out the reasons why the laboratory leaked the results.
2: Knowing what we do now about Lance's pervasive PED use, it's almost mind-boggling that people bought this charade. But it's important to remember why people were so willing to believe in Lance. As he put it, if he tested positive, he would lose the faith of all the cancer survivors around the world.
1: Lance was more than a sporting icon. He was a beacon of hope. In addition to his stunning comeback from cancer, he'd raised hundreds of millions of dollars to fight the disease.
2: If he turned out to be a fraud, people couldn't simply label him as just another athlete who had cheated his way to the top. They'd be forced to reconsider their entire worldview. They'd have to weigh the balance of Lance's deception with the good he had done for the world.
1: This moral dilemma was too daunting to confront. Instead of facing the painful reality that Lance was a cheater, people allowed themselves to believe in the lie.
2: With this latest doping allegation squattered aside, Lance was free to enjoy his retirement. There had been a few close calls along the way, but his reputation remained squeaky clean. And now, journalists like David Walsh had a new enemy to pursue. Floyd Landis.
1: In the wake of Lance's retirement, it was up to Floyd to carry the banner for American cyclists. He proved up to the challenge. Without Lance's overbearing presence, Floyd won the 2006 Tour de France. The American flag flew over Paris once again.
2: But the good times didn't roll for long. Only a few days after the 06 Tour ended, Floyd discovered that one of his samples had been flagged for abnormally high testosterone levels.
1: Unlike Lance, Floyd didn't have much pull with the UCI. Before he could do anything, someone leaked the news to the press.
2: Floyd also lacked Lance's composure under fire. When someone asked him about the positive test at a press conference, Floyd was like a deer in headlights. After a long pause, the answer he gave was... I'll say no.
1: Although Floyd tried his best, there was no fighting science. Ultimately, he was stripped of his Tour de France title and received a two-year ban that was set to end in January 2009.
2: With no powerful American presence, pro-cycling was in danger of losing the massive audience it had built over the last decade. Luckily, someone was poised to fill the vacuum. Lance Armstrong.
1: Retirement hadn't suited Lance well. His competitive fire couldn't be extinguished, and nothing stoked it like
2: pro cycling. In September 2008, Lance officially announced he was coming back for the 2009 season. Both he and Floyd Landis would be returning at the same time, but the reactions to their comebacks couldn't have been more different.
1: Lance returned to the cycling world amidst a flurry of publicity. He reunited with many of his elite teammates from his U.S. postal days, and even at 37 years old, was expected to contend for the Tour de France. Meanwhile, Floyd's comeback was met with a shrug. Although the 33-year-old was hardly over the hill, he could only latch on with a little-known team that mostly competed in minor races.
2: The 2009 season further emphasized the differences in the former teammates' fortunes. As Lance prepared for his return to the Tour de France, Floyd entered obscure races like the Redlands Classic and the Nature Valley Grand Prix.
1: Although Lance didn't add an eighth win to his total, he finished in a more than respectable third place. In fact, Lance was strong enough that he was asked to lead a brand new team for the 2010 season.
2: When Floyd found out, he decided to put the bad blood aside and ask Lance for a spot on the squad. He was denied. Lance's team director told Floyd that bringing him on would attract negative publicity.
1: Floyd was livid. When he tested positive back in 06, he wanted to come clean. If he did, his ban could have been significantly shortened. Instead, he stayed quiet to protect Lance and avoid getting blackballed upon his return. He realized he'd wasted two years of his career for nothing. His career was in shambles. His life was falling apart. He'd spent all his money trying to fight his positive doping test, all while people bent over backwards to accommodate Lance Armstrong's deception.
2: Floyd's resentment finally boiled over in April 2010. For the lead-up to that year's Tour de France, Lance was set to enter the Tour of California, The week-long race was the most prestigious in America. Floyd won its first edition back in 2006. But while the race organizers paid Lance to compete, they didn't even extend Floyd an invitation to participate.
1: Floyd couldn't take the injustice anymore. He was sick and tired of a system that rewarded cheating and corruption, and he was ready to do something about
2: it. On April 20th, 2010, Floyd met with Travis Tygart of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA. Floyd told Tygart everything he knew, from the 2002 training sessions with Lance and Dr. Ferrari until his positive test in 2006. He outlined the organized doping scheme within the U.S. Postal Team, and wasn't afraid to call out his fellow riders.
1: Despite these explosive allegations, Floyd didn’t trust Tigart to do anything with them. Lance’s connections ran deep. For all Floyd knew, Tygart ripped up all his notes after their meeting. So he decided to cast his net a little wider.
2: Ten days after he met with Tygart, Floyd sent a 1080word email to the President of U.S. Cycling and some select officials in the UCI. Like with Travis Tigart, he didn't hold anything back.
1: On May 17th, as Lance was busy racing in the Tour of California, the Wall Street Journal released a story on Floyd's email. To defend himself, Lance fell back on his tried-and-true method of smearing Floyd's character. He had plenty of fodder. After all, Floyd had fought his positive doping test tooth and nail. He'd even written a book to explain his side of the story.
2: But, for the first time, Lance's strategy wasn't enough. Floyd's accusations were so detailed, so specific, that even the most die-hard Lance fan couldn't ignore them. And neither could the federal government
1: Travis Tygart proved worthy of Floyd's trust. After their meeting, he looped in Jeff Novitsky, a criminal prosecutor in the Food and Drug Administration. On May 21st, the Wall Street Journal announced that Novitski was leading a federal investigation into Floyd's allegations.
2: For once, Lance was going up against an opponent he couldn't outlawyer. People he had kept quiet in the past came out of the woodwork in the face of grand jury subpoenas. This time, the accusations weren't coming from hospital room hearsay or massage table conspiracies. They were from his fiercely loyal teammates and closest confidants.
1: Lance also learned what it was like to feel the pressure of an avalanche of lawsuits. On June 10th, less than a month before the 2010 Tour de France, Floyd Landis launched a federal whistleblower case against Lance for defrauding the American government.
2: There was specific language in the US Postal Service contract with Lance's team prohibiting PED use. As one of the ringleaders behind the doping scheme, Lance could be partially liable for up to $100 million if the lawsuit was successful.
1: A dark cloud swirled over Lance throughout the Tour de France, where he finished a dismal 22nd, over 39 minutes behind the winner. Maybe the pressure was too much for him to handle. Maybe he wasn't able to undergo his usual doping regimen with so much attention on him. Maybe father time simply caught up to him. But either way, Lance Armstrong's cycling career was over for good.
2: In early 2011, Lance quietly announced his second retirement. And yet the investigations into him continued all the same. Ultimately, the U.S. Attorney's Office decided not to bring any formal charges against Lance, but Travis Tygart and the USADA did.
1: On October 10, 2012, USADA released the mountain of evidence it had collected against Lance. In addition to sworn affidavits from over two dozen teammates and associates that Lance had doped, USADA publicly released thousands of documents, emails, and receipts including over $1 million in payments to doping expert Dr.
2: Michele Ferrari. In the wake of what USADA called its reasoned decision, the UCI stripped all of Lance's race results from 1998 onward. His seven consecutive Tour de France victories were invalidated, thereby removing him from the record books.
1: Lance's sponsors also abandoned him in droves, Nike was the first to drop him, followed by Anheuser-Busch, Nissan, Radio Shack, and Trek Bicycles, just to name a few. He lost $75 million of endorsement money in a single day.
2: He was also pressured into resigning as chairman of the Lance Armstrong Foundation. In the span of just a few hours, Lance lost the empire he had dedicated nearly 15 years of his life to building.
1: In a last-ditch effort to redeem his public image, Lance sat down for an interview with Oprah Winfrey in January 2013. It was too little, too late.
2: Lance was generally panned for the interview. Although he admitted to doping, he deflected responsibility, placing most of the blame on cycling culture at large.
1: However, Lance's sins went far beyond using PEDs to keep up with everyone else. He presented himself as a hero to millions of people struggling with cancer and was willing to ruin people's lives to maintain that illusion.
2: But as the saying goes, time heals all wounds. Although Lance's Tour de France titles will never be restored, as of this recording, he has regained a place in the cycling community— He hosts a popular podcast which averaged 80,000 listeners a day during the 2017 tour and was expected to generate up to $1 million in revenue during the 2018 edition. He also provided live commentary for the race in 2019.
1: And although Lance did face financial penalties for his extensive doping, he settled Floyd Landis's whistleblower suit for $5 million, far from the potential $100 million in damages he faced. As of this recording, his net worth is still about $50 million.
2: But while Lance's image may have recovered from his doping scandal, he left a permanent scar on the sports landscape. Now, when an athlete delivers an otherworldly performance on the world's biggest stage, it's hard to watch it in breathless wonder. Instead, we have to ask ourselves, was what I just saw real?
1: And because of Lance Armstrong's history of lies and deceit, it may be impossible to ever answer that question again.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We'll be back next week with two more episodes.
1: You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall.
2: Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Alex Benedon with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.